0: Well, hey, good morning, Zion. How's everybody doing this morning? Wow. <laughs> Let's try it again. How's everybody doing this morning? That's so much better. We are here and we get to celebrate and worship Jesus Worship Jesus together. Amen? What a great privilege that is. Thank you guys for bringing that over. We're going to dig right into this. If you don't know me, my name is Jason. I am one of the pastors here at Zion. And on behalf of our staff, our leaders, our volunteers, and all who call this home, we are so glad that you are here with us today. Um, if you're looking for a church home during the summer, I know it's a little tough, but we're so glad you're here. If, if you live in Clear Lake and you don't have a spiritual family, a place to call family, we hope you'll consider being a part of what God is doing here. Um, we're just going to dig right in this morning, so would you please stand with me? We're going to start off with a prayer, and then I'm going to read our text for this morning. Now, here's what we've been doing. As a prayer of invitation and expectation, I invite you, if you want to, to repeat after me this prayer. And it is two parts prayer. It's one part saying, God, we know that you want something for us. How many of you agree with that? That God has something for you this morning? Okay? The second part is it's participation. It's us saying, God, we want something from you this morning. We don't we don't want to just sit here, we actually want to engage with your word. And so if that's where you are, if you want to join me in this prayer, uh, just repeat after me. Lord Jesus, I praise you for your faithfulness. Even when I am faithless, you are faithful. Holy Spirit, help me to place my trust in you. Help me to desire you. To hunger and thirst for you. Help me to freely worship and love you. In Jesus' holy name. Amen. And now, if you continue standing as I read our text for this morning, this morning we're going to be reading from Second Corinthians three twelve through eighteen, Galatians five one and Second Peter two sixteen, it begins this. Therefore, since we have such a hope. We are very bold. We are not like Moses who would put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from seeing the end of what was passing away, but their minds were made dull, for to this day the same veil remains when the Old Covenant is read. It has not been removed because only in Christ is it taken away. Even to this day when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into His image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm, then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Live as free people but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. The word of the Lord. Praise be to God. You may be seated. When I was a kid growing up, uh, I had a I had this desire that I could not wait to get older. How many of you guys remember that when you were a kid? I could not wait to be an adult. And, and part of that is as a kid, there were these benchmarks, these milestones that were important to me. Now I think some of them are milestones that are common to most people and maybe some of my milestones weren't yours but I have a feeling that some of the ones I'm going to share this morning you might be familiar with. There was this rite of passage that most kids who live around swimming pools or lakes are familiar with. How many of you guys remember floaties? Yeah I'm going to put these bad boys on. They're not inflated otherwise they wouldn't fit. But I remember putting these things on, and I hated floaties, absolutely hated them. And the reason why I hated them is that when growing up, I wasn't allowed to swim in a pool freely without them. How many of you guys can relate? We live by a lake, have a pool, right? This was kind of a rite of passage, these ridiculous little blow-up donuts that you put around your arms to keep your head above water. And I remember growing up, and I hated my floaties because I'd watch my friends as they were freely swimming around. No, I'm not going to keep these on the whole sermon because that'd look ridiculous. But I remember watching my friends freely swimming about, going underneath the water, swimming long distances under the water, and I couldn't do it. They could dive and go in head first. Can't do that with floaties. And we would also play this game. Now, I'm going to start it, and if you know it, I need you to say the next part. Marco, fish out of water? Yeah, y'all know what I'm talking about, right? How ridiculous is it to play Marco Polo with floaties on? It's horrible. You can't do it. And the reason why I hated floaties is because of what they represented. Lack of freedom. I got to take these things off because they're getting really hot. If anybody needs some floaties, I got some floaties for you. See, the problem with this is that when I was a kid, I wanted so desperately the freedom to swim where I wanted to. I wanted to go into the deep end of the pool without the safety net. Now here's the thing, as a miller, because we're really short, the shallow end is still the deep end of the pool for the millers. My son asked me, he goes, hey dad, uh, do you think I'll ever be like six foot? And I said, no son, no I do not. (laughs) See, this desire for freedom is huge. And most of our childhood benchmarks I would argue, center around our desire for freedom. How many, if you would agree with that, say amen, right? Think about the benchmarks we have, and let me give you just a few examples. Do you remember your first bike? When I first started riding my bike, I grew up in El Cajon in San Diego, and it meant freedom, and so I would go miles away from home biking, and, and there was a freedom that came with having a bike. There was another freedom that, uh, was a little bit more interesting. Growing up in the 80s, we had three primary movie rating systems that I as a child understood. You had G, which is general audience, meant that you could anybody could attend this movie. You had PG, which was parental guidance, and then you had R, which was restricted or no one under 17. And then in 1984, something happened. There was a movie that came out that challenged the rating system. And the two movies primarily that came out were Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom and Gremlins. And because of these two movies, they added a new rating system, PG-13. Now, also what came out in 1984, because these three movies are awesome, was Red Dawn. Anybody remember Red Dawn? Wolverines, right? Thank you. Someone gets it. See. In 1984, I was nine years old, which meant I couldn't go to these movies. I was, well, I, let me rephrase that. I wasn't supposed to go to these movies. I still found a way to went to go. And the whole reason why we did it is because they, they started realizing, hey, things are getting more violent. Now it's interesting. Now we look at a 13-year-old or even a nine-year-old, and the things that they're exposed to in our culture are way more graphic than they ever were in the 80s. Would you agree with that? Why? Well, so part of what's happened is freedom. Then at 16, you no longer needed a bike because at 16, I could drive. At 17, all of a sudden, I could see any movie I wanted to. At 18, I could join the military, you can legally smoke. 21, you can drink. 25, you can rent a car. And at pretty much every age-related milestone from there, every single one represents a new freedom. Because the assumption is, is that the older you get, the more you can handle your freedom. Here's the sad truth. No, you can't. In fact, I think what we find is that just because we get older does not mean we get wiser. Can I get an amen? In fact, if we look at our culture around us, we have a culture that is all about freedom and it doesn't feel like things are getting better. So what is this all about? These benchmarks again, are about freedom. But let's look at some other benchmarks. How about your fa- your first job, your first real paycheck, your first car, your first kiss, your first romantic relationship, your first house? After you have these, now all of a sudden you have like a 40-year drought of firsts until retirement. Now, because most of these things are centered on freedom, you might be asking, well, Jason, 4th of July... Seem to be about last week, and I mean, we're past the 4th of July this week. Why are you preaching this now? Why not then? And, and I want you to hear this. Last week, we talked about the promise of God's hope. God promises that in Jesus, you have hope. It is a real hope. And when the Bible speaks of hope, it is not at all the same as how our culture today looks at the word hope. In our culture today, the word hope seems to be short for wishful thinking or positive vibes. After the message last week, Pastor Dean Hess, who pastored here faithfully for 25 years, I don't know if he's here or not, but can we give a big thank you to Dean Hess for the many years of service? He is an incredible man, probably one of the most positive voices in our church. Dean came up to me afterwards and he said, Jason, hope today is another way of saying it's probably not going to happen, but here's to hoping. And as we talked about this hope, we had to look at what the Bible says about hope. And we're going to see this morning how hope, you cannot have real freedom unless you have real hope. See, when the authors of the Bible talk about hope, in Hebrew, the word for hope is tikva. Everybody say tikva. It is rooted in the word for a rope, a cord. A something tied together. Hope is something that you cling to, that you hold on to in times that are difficult, in the storms of life. And for God's people, for followers of Jesus, there is a difference between what we hope for and what we put our hope in. See, we can pray for a long life. We can hope to be healthy. We can hope for a good job. We can hope for great weather, but and there's nothing wrong with hoping for these things, but these are not things that you put your hope in. What you put your hope in are things that are meant to carry you through difficult times in your life. I know that there are many of you in, here today that are dealing with some difficult struggles. Maybe it's a a sickness or a job loss or a marriage issue. Something is going on, and and what you need is something to put your hope in, not just to hope for. It's of little comfort to hope for health when you're battling illness. It's in the storms when you find out if what you put your hope in is actually worth clinging to, binding yourself to, anchoring yourself to, which is why God calls us to put our hope your hope in Jesus because God's promise of hope is not that life will be easy. In fact, God promises the opposite. God says life is going to be hard. There is sin in the world and sin affects all of us. Instead of hoping for an easy life, we put our hope in a God who is present through all of it, who will not abandon us in the storms. As a Christian, you don't have to hope for forgiveness You put your hope in Jesus who promises forgiveness. You don't have to hope for salvation. You put your hope in Jesus who promises that you are saved if you trust Him. You don't have to hope for eternity in heaven. You put your hope in Jesus who promises eternal life, everlasting life with those who love Him and He's called by name. Which is exactly why I'm talking about God's promise of freedom after we talk about hope. Because when I was younger, I put my hope in freedom. I thought that if I just had freedom, life would be easier. How many of you remember your first bill? All of a sudden, just because you have a paycheck doesn't mean you have endless amounts of money. You have responsibilities. I put, I I didn't understand that as a kid, so I put my hope in my future. I clung to this idea that everything would be better, easier, life would be fuller if I just had more freedom. And I dare say that there are many of you here today that are still believing this lie that freedom is what we hope for that you don't understand what it means for freedom. Much like the word hope in the Bible, we actually don't understand what the Bible means by freedom, which is why when I was a kid, I couldn't wait to grow up because I didn't understand what freedom actually brought with it. In my immaturity, in my inexperience, I couldn't understand that with freedom comes responsibility, accountability, and consequences. And because I didn't understand that, what I did is I idolized freedom. I put my hope in freedom. This is not something new for our culture, much less was it new for me. I think for a large part of the problems that we're experiencing in our culture today are because we don't understand what freedom actually is, especially as believers and followers of Jesus. Now, the Bible actually says a lot about the word freedom, and there's a lot of verses, but what we tend to do is take these verses out of context. We cherry-pick them to what we want them to say. Here are some of the most popular verses quoted when it comes to freedom. If the Son has set you free, you are free indeed, John 8, 36. Luke five eighteen. Jesus came to set the captives free. Or in Paul writes in Galatians, which is one of our verses today, for it is for freedom that we have been set free. All of these are true verses. All of these things speak about the freedom of the believer. But in order to understand what the Bible means when it uses the word freedom, we must actually understand the whole story of Scripture. We have to look at what God describes how freedom looks and what it happens when people abuse freedom freedom as god's people so understanding the story of god's people is not just good to know it's absolutely essential now i'll also say here's the danger what we often will do is we'll overlay our own experiences we'll put glasses over how we read the bible so we interpret what god's word says in light of what we want it to say does that make sense everybody tracking with me and so here's what happens for example In our modern culture, if I say freedom, particularly in America, here are some of the things you're going to hear. Well, we have freedom of speech. I can say I'm free to say whatever I want to say. Freedom of religion. I am free to worship or not worship any and all gods. There is no such thing as a state religion. Or maybe it's free will. I have the freedom to make choices for my life. These are our just a few ideas of modern freedom. And don't get me wrong, I'm grateful for all of these things. These are incredible freedoms, but these are not at all what the Bible means by freedom. When the Bible talks about the idea of freedom, it's not talking about your freedom to say what you want or do whatever you want. There's actually a different understanding of freedom as you read Scripture, to better understand it, I want to look at our first verse, our section of verses from this morning, 2 Corinthians. Paul is writing these words. Now listen to this. This is just the first two verses. Therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. We are not like Moses who would put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from seeing the end of what was passing away. Okay, now Paul was not writing Scripture in a vacuum. The Holy Spirit came upon Paul, helped Paul write God's word, but Paul was not writing in a vacuum. Paul was a Jew. Paul had 1,500 years of Jewish history that influenced how he wrote, what he thought about in the world. And immediately, I want to give you a tip. How many of you ever struggle with understanding the Bible? If, you, if that's you, raise your hand. Notice my hand is raised because there are times I'm like, I don't know what that means. I'm going to give you a tip. You ready for this? Anytime that you see someone in the New Testament reference A name, an event, or a date. Going to let them pass by. Yay. (laughs) Anytime you see a name, a date, or an event in the New Testament, that is an invitation for you to go back and read about it. Because if you don't understand what Paul meant When he was talking about Moses covering his face, you're not going to understand any of what he says next. So let me fill in the gaps for you this morning with what Paul is saying and where we're coming to and what this has to do with freedom. So Paul is going all the way back to a guy named Moses. If you know Moses, say amen. I don't mean you literally know Moses, but you know of Moses. Maybe you know Moses because you read him in the Bible, because you grew up in church. Maybe you went to Sunday school. Maybe you watched Prince of Egypt or the Ten Commandments. For whatever reason, if you know Moses, God's people were slaves in Egypt. For 400 years, they cried out to God to rescue them. Their hope was in freedom, freedom from Pharaoh's hand, freedom from the gods of Egypt. Now, this is important. Their hope was in freedom. God sends a deliverer named Moses, who was a Jewish child, Hebrew child, who was raised in the Egyptian household. God uses him, and I'm just going to do a giant highlight reel here. God uses Moses to rescue the Israelites out of Egypt. Each time God sends Moses to go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go, that they can go worship freely in the desert and Pharaoh says no. Nine times, Pharaoh has the opportunity to let God's people go worship him in the desert, and each time, Pharaoh says no. And then on the 10th time, God sends the plague of death. The firstborn child dies, and at this, Pharaoh's household, his whole world is shattered, and now Pharaoh lets God's people go so that they might worship Now, as they're going, Pharaoh's heart again becomes hard and he chases after the Israelites till they get to the Red Sea. And then again, what we see is God rescuing through his servant, Moses, God's people from slavery. They pass through the Red Sea. God delivers them. Now, there are two people that are with Moses, Aaron, his brother, and his sister, Miriam. Now they are free in the desert. You have the Israelites who are walking through the desert and are supposed to be going to the promised land, which is not a very far journey, a land flowing with milk and honey, ultimate freedom. But there's one problem. These people are incredibly hard-hearted and stubborn. And so God doesn't let them into the promised land, so they have to wander in the desert for 40 years. Now check out what happens here. As they're going through the desert, God is still guiding them through Moses, his servant, Moses goes up onto a mountaintop to go spend time with the Lord. He's going to intercede for God's people. He's going to hear directly from God. He's in God's presence. And there, God gives Moses the Ten Commandments. He gives them all of the things that are going to help Israel become a formal people, their own nation, a people blessed by God. Now, this all picks up in Exodus 32. This is what happened. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron, that's Moses' brother, and said, come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. And so here's what Aaron's there. Aaron, the brother of Moses who saw God do all these amazing things, Go says, no, no, guys, don't do that. Let's let's be patient. God's going to provide. No, that's not what happens. You know what Aaron says? Sure. You want new gods? You got all this freedom? Fine. You want a God to believe in? Give me all your gold, everything that you plundered from Egypt. Give it to me and I'll fashion it into a golden calf. Now, I want you to think about this. Aaron saw firsthand all the things that God did. He saw the ten plagues, he saw the parting of the Red Sea, he saw the pillar of fire by night and cloud by day. He saw God do all these incredible works, and when the Israelites who did not believe the first taste of freedom they get, instead of trusting God, they go back to Egypt. All of a sudden, they want what is familiar. And so Aaron fashions a golden calf. Now, here's what Exodus 32 tells us. God who is omnipresent and omniscient, knows exactly what's going on. And so he turns to Moses and he says, Moses, I'm so done with Israel. They've decided they want they want a calf, they want they want to go back to Egypt. Let me I just just leave me alone, Moses, let me be angry, let my anger burn against them, tell you what, I'll destroy them. I'll start, a, I'll, I'll, I'll start something with you, but I'm done with Israel And God, is finished. He's angry, and he has every right to be angry. Now, this is important to know. Anger is not a sin when it is righteous anger. Sinful anger is wrong. Righteous anger is rooted in holiness and a desire for what is good, and God's people have abandoned God. Listen to what happens now with the Israelites. The Israelites get this golden calf after God has miraculously rescued them. They look at this calf, and they say, these are are our gods, Israel, who brought us up out of Egypt. Not Yahweh. God didn't deliver. These gods did us. And now they brought us into the desert and so we can do what we want. And Aaron's response to them was awesome. Tomorrow, let's build an altar to the Lord who delivered you in front of the calf and let's bring sacrifices of offering. And the next day, they threw this huge party in front of the golden calf crafted by uh, Moses' brother Aaron. They get drunk and they party. God is finished with him. He's so done. And yet here we see Moses who comes before the Lord and says, you know, God, I know you're angry, but let's not forget you made a promise to their fathers to their forefathers. And you are a good God. You are compassionate and slow to anger. And and you know what? You don't want every other nation to think that you're just like all the other gods. Now, here's the thing. There are some times that when you read the Bible, you kind of go, I don't know that I get this. I don't always understand why God gets angry. I don't always understand God's wrath. That's a totally different message. What we do know is this. The first moment... That Israel had true freedom, freedom from Pharaoh's hand, freedom from the gods of Egypt. That slightest taste of freedom, they abused it. Instead of celebrating, instead of being grateful for what God has done, they abused the freedom that was given them. They took advantage of it. They didn't not only take advantage of it, they then gave credit to their masters, to the, the slave owners before as if that was who rescued them. Now before you're too hard on the Israelites, I got to tell you, we're no different. I'm no different. Let me give you an example. See, in our culture today, we don't have pharaohs and, and Egyptian gods, but we have a different kind of pharaoh. and We have different kinds of gods that we worship. We have different things that we put as altars. One of the, the biggest altars in America is a television. But here are some of the idols, the things that we think have brought us freedom, Human reason and intellect, that's one of the ones that many of us think that's what's brought us to where we are. I'm free because I'm intelligent. We have reason. Government, a particular political party, political correctness, wokeness. I don't know about you, but I'm so done with wokeness. I'm done with this idea that the best way to bring freedom is by saying one group is free, but everybody else can't be free. This is not the picture of freedom. We think these things are what have set us free when in truth, these things have just enslaved us in a different way. They masquerade as freedom. Let's continue with the story. Because nothing is hidden from God, God again is angry with Moses. Moses intercedes on behalf of the people and God relents. God had every right to be angry with Israel, but Moses reminded God of His promises, and it says, God relented and then showed mercy and grace to His people. They didn't deserve it. They didn't earn it. I want you to hear this. God still shows mercy and grace when we don't earn it or deserve it. Amen? That is the promise of grace. Now, check this out. This is one of the reasons why I love reading the Old Testament. There's a fun little fact that you're going to learn about the Ten Commandments this morning that you may not have known. Did you know that the first tablets, the first two tablets that were written, were not actually written by Moses. They were directly inscribed by God's hand. God wrote on the stone. This is what Exodus 32:15 says. Moses turned and went down the mountain with the two tablets of the law in his hand. They were inscribed on both sides, front and back. The tablets were the work of God. The writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablet. So Moses is bringing these tablets down the mountain and he's been told already that Israel is throwing a party, that they're abusing their freedom, they're dancing and celebrating and doing all these, really a wild party. And Moses comes and he's actually not prepared for what he sees. And when Moses comes down from the mountain, he gets so angry, He literally looks at the people of Israel and he throws the tablets down and they shatter into pieces. Moses then goes and he grabs the golden calf that they fashioned. He grounds it into dust. He then puts it in water and he forces all of Israel to drink it. I want you to think about this for a second. Moses takes the gold dust from the calf that they've made, the idol, he stirs it into water and he forces every Israelite to drink some of it, basically saying, if this is what you want, this is what you're going to get. Now, Moses is angry. He's angry because the people don't understand their freedom. They created things to worship. Instead of worshiping God with their freedom, they found new things to worship instead of coming and, and praising God for delivering them out of Egypt rescuing them from the gods of Egypt they went and they worshiped the gods of Egypt the book of proverbs a book dedicated to wisdom gives us insight this insight about freedom it says this proverbs 14:12 there is a way that seems right but in the end it leads to death proverbs 21:12 every way of a man is right in his own eyes but the lord weighs the heart The sad truth is we as humans cannot actually handle real freedom. We don't know how to handle it. We know this deep down. This is why we slowly give freedom to our children as they show responsibility and grow into adulthood because we understand that freedom has power to it. And to quote the great Uncle Ben and Aunt May from Spider-Man, with great power comes great responsibility. There are two problems that arise with freedom, and I hope you hear these this morning. The first problem with freedom is maturity. Age never guarantees maturity. I know 60-year-olds who still act like they're 17-year-olds. I know 25-year-olds who act like they're 80-year-olds. Age is not the indicator of maturity. A mature person understands that with freedom comes power, but also comes consequences. That if you make a decision, you have to live with that decision. We see this with kids when they first get their license. When I first started driving at 16 years old, I thought I was invincible. I was an idiot. Like, I was the dumbest driver. I drove fast. I drove reckless. Why? Because my 16-year-old brain didn't understand full consequences of driving recklessly. The second is this. Sin. We tend to miss the mark when it comes to making right decisions on our own. Whether you or I, whether you're a good person or not, when we make decisions that are our own decisions, we tend to only think about ourselves or those closest to us. We don't have the bigger picture. Israel's story is our story. It's your story. Israel was slaves in Egypt to to Pharaoh and to the gods of Pharaoh for 400 years. They wanted freedom, but freedom is not the main goal. God is. Can Can you say amen to that? God is the amen. God is the goal. Everybody say God is the goal. Not freedom, not hope. God is the goal. They put their hope in freedom, but it should have been in the God who set them free. If you're a Christian You have freedom in Christ, but your hope is not in freedom. Your hope is in Jesus who set you free. Can I get an amen? And I want you to understand how important this is. After all this goes down, Moses goes outside of the camp. He's now angry again with Israel, just like God was. And this time, God sets up this place, it's called the Tent of Meeting, and the Tent of Meeting was a place where God's Spirit dwelled, and this is important, okay? God's Spirit is in the Tent of Meeting. Moses goes into the Tent of Meeting because he knows that where the Spirit of the Lord is, is real freedom. Kind of sounds familiar, doesn't it? And as he's meeting with God, God comes to him and he says, hey, let's... Write those Ten Commandments, but this time, Moses, I'm not going to write them down. I want you to chisel them into stone. This was not easy work, and there's a couple reasons. Scholars think there might be a couple different reasons why Moses had to write them down. The first one was to teach Moses stewardship. Like, yes, Moses, I made these for you the first time, and I get that you were angry, but don't be stupid and break them. If you break them again, you're going to have to make them again. So God said, this time, Moses, I'm going to make you chisel into the stone. But the second one, which I think might be even more important for us to understand, the reason why the Ten Commandments were written in stone is because stone is hard, just like our hearts are hard. It is hard to get God's law in our hearts. It is hard to change the heart of a broken person. Which is why we see in the prophets in the Old Testament, they say that one day their spirit will come and will give us hearts of clay, not a heart of stone. Now God's law will be imprinted on our heart. Here's what it said. If you are pleased with me, listen to this next part. This is so good. Moses in the tent of meeting says to the Lord, if you are pleased with me, Teach me your ways so I may know you and continue to find favor with you, Lord. Remember that this nation is your people. Now hear this, ready? God replies, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Which, by the way, we're going to be talking about the promise of rest next week. Moses then says to God... If your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all other people of the face of the earth? And then the Lord, Moses says to God, show me your glory, Lord. Show me your glory. He doesn't say, show me glory the future. He doesn't say, show me the right way. He says, show me your glory. Moses understood that the real freedom, real freedom found in God is to know God. He wants God. He wants God's wisdom. He wants to see, to encounter the glory of God. God then tells Moses, hey, go and write the tablets, create the new law. As he does this, something amazing happens in the tent. When Moses spends time with the Lord, because the presence of the Lord, the glory of the Lord is so tangible, Moses' face literally begins to glow. And as he comes down the mountain... All the Israelites see the face of Moses glowing. No, I'm not talking about the glowing you get from a first kiss or when you first see your child or on your wedding day. It is a tangible radiance coming from Moses' face. God's presence is that real, that thick, that Moses, his face is glowing. Now, let's go back to 2 Corinthians. 1,500 years later, the apostle Paul Therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. We are not like Moses who would put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from seeing the end of what was passing away. Moses, because of this glow, started putting a veil around his face. Now, for years, I was taught the reason why Moses put the veil on his face is because they couldn't handle the glory. They couldn't handle They were so freaked out by the shining of Moses' face that Moses was doing them a, a kindness by covering it. But what's important to read is that last statement. He would put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from seeing the end of what was passing away. Did you know the the reason why Moses hid his face? Is because eventually, the longer that Moses was away from the presence of the Lord, the glory faded. He hid his face because he didn't want the Israelites to lose their hope in God because he knew that their hope would be in how radiant he was, not how good and faithful God is. Our hope is in God. But their minds are made dull, for to this day the same veil remains when the Old Covenant is read. See, here's what's happening. The Old Covenant is the covenant of the law where you put your hope in the sacrifice of animals. You put your hope in obedience to the law. As Christians, the reason why... We don't have to worry about that hope is that our hope is in what Jesus did, which was a once and for all sacrifice. You don't have to worry about the glory fading of God's goodness because of what Jesus did. Moses understood that the Old Covenant was a temporary solution. We have a permanent solution in Jesus. So you might be wondering, what's any of this got to do with God's promise of freedom? Well, with all of that history in mind, a people who are rescued from, it, from Egypt, a people who go out into the wilderness, who form a, a calf, a golden calf, because Moses has gone too long, who worship. And instead of freely worshiping God, they worship their freedom and they begin to go into drunkenness and parties and all these different things. But Moses understood where real freedom was found, which is in the presence of God. And here's what it says. This is going back to 2 Corinthians. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Moses could only encounter God's glory in the tent of meeting. You and I, because of Jesus, you are the tent of meeting. Did you catch that? You are the place where God's Spirit dwells if you're a Christian. You are the place where Spirit is found if you have the Holy Spirit in you because real freedom is not found in your freedoms. It's found in the God who gives you freedom. And all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into His image with ever-increasing glory which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. I'm going to invite the worship team back up as we come to the last part of this message, I want you to hear these words because I believe that they might change your world today. Because of Jesus, you have ultimate freedom. You have been freed, rescued from sin and death. Jesus set you free from the shame and guilt of sin, but more importantly, from the power and reign of sin. You are now free to live for God, to worship Jesus. Only Christians are truly free to choose not to sin. Let me explain what I mean by that. Non-Christians can be good people. In fact, I would argue some of the best people I know don't know Jesus. But only a Christian can choose not to sin because when we choose not to sin, we're doing it for God's glory, not our own. A non-Christian might choose not to sin because they're saying, Hey, I'm a good person. Who's the center? Who's the object of power there? They are. When a Christian says, I don't have to sin, it's because the Spirit lives in them. This is why when we read in 8 John 8, Very truly I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to that family forever. For if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. When Paul wrote in Galatians 5.1, we also have to read 5.13. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm them and do not let yourselves be burned again by your yoke of slavery. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. God knows the danger of freedom is the freedom to sin. That is the danger. You are free to sin in Jesus. The Apostle Paul says that because of Christ, everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. Have you ever met or heard about a spoiled rich kid who thinks that they're above the law because their parents have money and can buy them out of any situation? Wealth gave them incredible freedom, but in their immaturity and arrogance, there's an assumption that they're free to do whatever they want. Mature people understand that real freedom is not the ability to do whatever you want. Real freedom is the ability to not do something. What are the things that are controlling your life? Where has your freedom taken you in the wrong direction? See, freedom comes with the cost. For us, our freedom came with the cost of the life of the Son of God. As Christians, and I'm going to say something, and I say this with all love, and I'm not pointing fingers because... This is me preaching to me. As Christians, we need to grow up. We need to mature. God is lovingly challenging those of us who call ourselves Christians. This is a challenge for you and for me. How are you stewarding God's freedom in your life? For instance, did you know that over the last 15 years since I've been doing weddings, I can only count to a handful of Christians who were not living together and sleeping together before their marriage. Now, this is not an indictment. Why? Because as Christians, they sense they have a freedom to do it, but here's the thing, that's not what God wants you to do. God has set you aside and said, no, do things in honor the way that that I want you to and I need you to because it's for your blessing, not just for my glory, but for your blessing. Christians abuse their freedom all the time. Now, Jesus this is a big deal to him. And you might be thinking, Jason, this sounds really legalistic. It's not. Because I'm not saying you're losing your salvation. When you abuse freedom, it doesn't mean you're not saved. It means you're not fully putting your hope in Jesus. You're putting your hope in your freedom. And therefore, because your hope is in your freedom, you start doing things that Quite frankly, God doesn't want us to do. How about drinking and drugs? The Bible does not say drinking is a sin. Drunkenness is a sin. But how many of you are going out Friday night, Saturday night, partying, getting drunk? Why? Yes, you're free to do it. But is it beneficial? How about relationships or the different things that we do? There are so many things that God is calling us to. These are immature, childish views of freedom. Real freedom is the ability not to do something, to not be controlled by something. I want to invite you to stand with me. If you need freedom in your life this morning, if you have been abusing the freedom, if you're trapped because somewhere along the way, instead of putting your hope in Jesus, you put your hope in a relationship, you put your hope in drugs or alcohol or sex or Maybe it's television. I don't know what it is. But if your hope is not in Jesus, if you're finding yourself trapped, God is here to tell you this. You can be free in Christ, free from sin and shame, free from guilt, free because Jesus paid the price. Amen? I want to read our last verse today, 1 Peter 2.16. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil live as God's slaves. I want to go back to where I first started with my floaties. When I was a child, I thought freedom was being able to not have to wear floaties unhindered. As I got older, I discovered that while I can absolutely swim freely whenever and wherever I want, I would be foolish to swim in shark-infested waters. I would be foolish to jump into a rip current or where waves are too much for me because my freedom could lead to my perishing. Some of you this morning are perishing because of your freedom. And God needs you to come back to the source of freedom. Now imagine for a moment, imagine someone who uses their freedom to swim, to become a lifeguard. They use that freedom to stand watch at the pool or on the beach. They use their strength and their freedom to help others. God has rescued some of you so you might be able to come and bring others to him. God wants to do something incredible in your life. That's what real freedom is. Real freedom is being able to freely worship, freely love, freely forgive, freely be able to stand in front of people and saying, God is good, amen? And as we do that, Here's what I want to ask you this morning. What do you need freedom from? Because ultimately God is inviting you to this promise. If you come to him, he will show you his glory. Because the glory is the Son of God revealed. Amen? Would you pray with me? If you need something forgiven this morning, if you need freedom, if you just do me a favor, place your hands out like this. If there's an area, if you can think about it, if there's an area where you need freedom, real freedom, I'm going to invite you to pray these words after me. And this is a, it is a surrender to the Lord. Just say this with me, Lord Jesus, I put my hope in you. Help me to worship you freely. Help free me from the fear of man. Free from the trap of religion. Help free me from the addiction, from people-pleasing, control, pleasure, power, position, and privilege. Help me to have real freedom in you, Jesus. In your name I pray and all God's people said. Amen. Can we give a thank you to the Lord because God is good. Let's come and worship the Lord.